morning, if you brought a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. If you were with us uh, last week, you know we started a new series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week we looked at how not to pray as the hypocrites and the, uh, the pagans. And so we'll actually enter the prayer this morning and begin to see how this prayer shapes us and teaches us to pray. And, and the title for our series is Learning to Pray, Vision from the Lord's Prayer series um, is, is, well, is the series that we're doing. Uh, and I think that's important first for all of us to recognize that uh, we're not coming to you, and I hope you're not feeling like uh, these are just sort of checkpoints um, that we're speaking to people or that we are people who know all that there is to know about prayer, but that we collectively are what Christians learning to pray still. And we will continue that process of learning to pray until we see our maker face to face. So with that, let me uh, read for us Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 to 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Jesus said, pray then like this, our father in heaven, how would be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also for, have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you that it has found its way here to Fort Worth Presbyterian Church in the year 2019. So we ask that you would do a miracle again, that you would, uh, and by miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts, uh, that, that we would be a people who respond to you that we, we would have our eyes opened and our ears opened, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. Uh, would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. In the movie uh, Walk the Line, which came out several years ago, some of you might have seen it, but in, in that movie, you know that movie is about the life of, of Johnny Cash. And uh, if you've seen that movie, it gives you a glimpse of uh, both his, his later life, but also his early life. And we learn pretty quickly uh, that there were some events in his early, early life, childhood, uh, that really shaped who he was and, um, and, and st- stayed with him for the rest of his life. And, and in one particular scene, um, uh, in one event prior to the scene that happened that did shape Johnny's life, that we learned about is that his, his 15-year-old brother, his older brother, died of a tragic accident involving a saw. And this is sort of a moment in his life that he never really got over. Um, it's hard, hard to, to get over something like that. But what made this worse uh, was the way that his dad would then respond to him throughout the rest of his life. And in this one scene, if you've seen this movie, it, it, it's, so, it's so, so tough um, that the family is there uh, sort of in the house. This is after the accident. And they're listening to the radio. And Johnny's father comes in and he sits down and he starts to begin to stares right at at, at J.R., Johnny Cash, and he begins to kind of taunt him a little bit. <clears throat> and then he holds up this can, and there here are his words. He says, you know what this is, J.R.? You know what this is? And he's holding up this empty can. He's kind of drumming his fingers through it, and he says, it's nothing. That's what this is. It's nothing. And then he says, that's what you are. Okay, this is Johnny Cash, 12 years old. It's hard to come back from that. And his mother, who's there, notices this says something similar to the words of, you know, stop it. You know, he, he didn't do this. And then his dad say this word, say, says, says this, says the devil did this. He took the wrong son. Right. 
Now, that, that's hard to hear, right? And it's hard to hear if you're 12. It's hard to hear because many of us in this room think you know, children shouldn't have to be brought up under that. Um, but it, it's also hard to hear, too, because uh, for some of us, that, that could actually be very close to the childhood that we grew up under. And so many of us might have had parents that have left us in similar ways, scarred, for example, or numb. And so to turn now to a prayer that begins with our Father can be strange, it can be difficult, it can be anything but comforting to us. And so for many, the title Father has never really been associated with the word safety, with the word security, with the word forgiveness, acceptance, or love. But as Dan Doriani writes about this title, he says, Father, the word Father, that word, he says, nothing shapes our prayers more than this word. And if that's true, then we have to allow something to enter into our lives to deconstruct and then reconstruct this image that we might be carrying with us of bad fathers or imperfect fathers or imperfect parents. And so for us to enter into this prayer, to have it shape us as it should, many of us will need to allow God as Father to be reshaped. But this is not just for those who have had bad fathers, right? Many of us in this room would say we've had, we've had good fathers. Right? Not perfect by any means, not expecting that. But we've had really good fathers. I've had a good father. But even still, we need to have that image deconstructed and reconstructed. Why? Because even the best fathers in this world, right, they are but a taste, I mean, reflection of the goodness of our Father in heaven. And as John Calvin writes, and you're going to hear a lot of John Calvin this morning, uh, his stuff on prayer is some of the best. But as he says, he says, because of the narrowness of our hearts, we cannot comprehend God's boundless favor. And what he's saying there, what that means is that for those who have had good fathers, you're not even scratching the surface of the goodness of our heavenly father. A God who doesn't just call us uh, or allow, a God that doesn't just allow us to call him father, but explicitly asks us to call him our father. He's yours. He's yours. And so for our time, what I really want to do this morning, what this sermon has really become, is for us to see what it means to call God Father by looking at two stories in Scripture that I hope will shape the images that we might have of the goodness of the Father. And then we will turn to the cross in order to see how we are able to call God our Father. So what you might be noticing at this point is that outline in your bulletin. Just forget about it. Just strike a line through it. Um, Sometimes Thursday's outline doesn't become Sunday's outline. When you're dealing with me, I apologize for that, but that's okay. So your your outline is actually more simple than that. We're going to look at the goodness of the Father in two stories. And then we're going to see how it is we're able to call him our Father. All right? So let's look at that first one, the goodness of the Father. Of the Father. The first image that I want us to carry with us comes from Luke chapter 15. Uh, This is the the familiar story of the prodigal son. Maybe we're familiar with it being called that. And just to quickly summarize this story for those that maybe aren't too familiar with it, or maybe it's just something that you haven't visited in a while, uh, the story begins with with, there's two sons, but there's a younger son who goes off. uh, Before he goes off and leaves the family, he asks for his inheritance. He asks his father to give him what is rightfully his. And at first reading, this doesn't seem to be something that's too, I mean, yeah, there's probably some, uh, you know, 
awkwardness going on there. Why would he be doing this? But in, in this culture, uh, it's incredibly insulting to do this because this is essentially saying to the father, you're, you're pretty much dead to me because that's what would have to happen for him to get his inheritance. The father would have to die. And so even in this context, as Jesus is telling this story, um, you know, it would be right for the father and the rest of the family to disown this son. We don't get that detail, but that, that would be the weight of this at this point. Um, and so what, what happens as we read this is that, um, as the story goes on, is the father gives the younger son his inheritance. And then they were familiar with what happens after that. He goes and he, he spends it all on all that this world has to offer. And then it gets to the point where he's just, I mean, he's about as low as pigs are in that day and age and eating whatever they have to eat. And he realizes, you know what, I could go back to my father and just be hired on as a servant. I don't have to become his son again. I don't have to be part of the family, but I could be hired on. And, 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 and that life would be better than the life that I have now. And so he, he begins to do that. And the text picks up here in verse 18. Just listen to it. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, and here's his, here's his, you know, his line, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, right? This is sort of the, the story he's telling himself. And so he arose and he came to the father. And this is where the story turns on its head. This is where, for all practical purposes, Jewish ears would be just sort of, what? And you all know what happens. But while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke records that as the son goes into his prepared speech, it's as if the father sort of cuts him off and orders for his servants to bring the best robe and to put a ring on his hand, which is a a symbol of reinstating the son into the family because that ring would have the family crest on it and shoes on his feet. Calvin again says this about this very text, that a son had estranged himself from his father, had wasted his substance, had grievously offended against him in every way. But the father embraces him with open arms and does not wait for him to ask for pardon, but he anticipates him. He recognizes him, willingly runs to meet him, confronts him and receives him into favor. Now, whatever image of the Father that you came into this room with this morning, this is the one, this is one of those, we must allow to deconstruct and reconstruct what it might be for us to pray our Father. A Father of all mercies and of compassion. A Father who, in your worst hours, doesn't wait for you to come to Him and confess your sin and get your story straight. So that he can then offer or, you know, receive that and then offer you your punishment or just sort of tolerate you from now on. Which is really what many of us think God does to us, especially after that thousandth time we've come to him with whatever sin that it is that he just tolerates us. No, that's not what happens here. This is a father who anticipates, recognizes, comforts, and receives you as his own. Every time. And he does this before you even know to go to him in prayer. That's the image. That's what, that's what has to be deconstructed and reconstructed to place that image into our minds. That's the image that has to reshape us as we think about this prayer as it begins, our Father. This Father in this story is so jealous for his son's affection. And the same is true about our Heavenly Father as well. He is so jealous for your affection and he longs to be with you that he will not wait for you. 
but it will actually run after you. And it's a stunning image even in this text as one for that culture that would seem unthinkable. No grown man or men run after anybody. It's a sign of disrespect, but not here. But Luke wants to make sure that we understand that nothing, even embarrassment, even humiliation, will keep this father from showing his hand, showing what it is that he really thinks of you, what he thinks about all of his children. And I think that's interesting as we think about our own, maybe parents, fathers, whatever. <clears throat> I know as I think about myself, um, it's rare that I will humiliate myself. It's rare that I will uh, risk embarrassment for the sake of my children at times. Well, there's moments where I'll do that. But I will try to avoid it at all costs. And Luke is showing us that, that is not even close to the image of the Father that we have. I quoted Brene Brown last week saying that vulnerability is the first thing we want to see in others, but it's the last thing that we want to see. It's the last thing we want others to see in us. Do you remember that? Well, the image of the Father in Luke 15 is that he is happy to be vulnerable first. He's happy to show you what he thinks about you, even though that might come with your rejection. That's the image. How is that reshaping us? Is this the image that you have of your father as you pray to him? So this is the first image. This is the one that we pray to when we begin our prayers, our prayer of our father. The second image I want us to carry around with us, though, comes also from Luke. But chapter 11, it's the second place in Scripture where we find the Lord's Prayer. And interesting enough about this about, the, about this placement of this prayer is that after it, Jesus tells a bunch of stories about, um, about, about how good the Father is. He tells stories about, um, about how he gives good things to his children, essentially. And in verse 11, we read, What father among you, you don't have to turn there, just listen. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Some of you thought, no, I'm just kidding. Um, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good things or good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him, right? And, and the point here is sort of obvious. I mean, we are fallen, we are sinful, we're not like God. We are evil in the sense that our desire isn't for God and the good He intends for us and for others. We are selfish, we are self-centered, is what that, what that means. Um, we even have the capacity to kill. That's, that's the, the point of the Cain and Abel story in chapter 4. You know, that's just not documentary on their lives, what happened to them. But that is that's how far humans have fallen from the garden so quickly because of sin. That capacity resides in us. This is what it means for us to be evil. I could, I, I could go on. But all of that, yet we still have the capacity to do amazing things for our children or for others. Yeah. We have this problem, but even in this problem, our parental capabilities are not all lost. Uh, there's a counselor named Dr. John Cox who tells a story of a parenting moment that just sort of fell into his lap. And he tells it as an illustration uh, of ways to use moments in your life with your kids to help them know who God is. And he says that the way this story goes is that one Christmas, uh, many years ago, his kids are growing up, but they wanted a Nintendo I think it was Nintendo 64. Details don't matter at this point. And so, you know, it's Christmas, and we're talking about this as a family, and 
he's like, you know, let's, let's do this. All right. So they went to go, um, you know, or he actually went to go uh, sort of find this, this, this entertainment system. And everywhere that he went, it was sold out. And so he had to go back to his kids and tell them the disappointing news that, look, it's not going to happen this year. Um, but they said about six months from now, we'll have a new stock in and, and you, know, you can come back then and get one. And so this is before Amazon and all that stuff. Uh, so forget about, you know, same day delivery and just kind of having it in your queue. So the kids were like, okay, all right. You know, probably at this point, a little sad, but that's the way things went that year. And, um, and so they had Christmas and it went on and, um, and in about six months goes by. And like most of us, as life does, uh, he had forgotten about that promise, about that moment. But what was also strange about it is he realized that his kids had also forgotten about it too. Nobody had asked about it. <laughs> Nobody had come up to him and said, hey, you remember six months ago when we were supposed to go get that Nintendo? And he said it was out and they said they'd have him in. We can go get it now, right? I mean, they had forgotten about it too. Nobody had said a word about this. Um, and so, you know, it was funny for him to sort of think about this. And as he's telling the story, he's realizing, you know, at any given moment, if the kids would just ask, they could have this, you know, of course, what would be to them, uh, the meaning of life. Right, and the Nintendo, right? Everything that would make life well and perfect. But then he realized, you know, I could keep this to myself too. You know, I could just sort of just go on. Maybe they remember, maybe they don't, and I can kind of just save some money. What's the big deal? And so, thinking about this, he actually decides to, to tell them and remind them about this. And so, one day they're out there playing in the backyard, and he goes out there and he tells them, hey, you remember what? Remember what dad promised about six months ago? It's been six months. Let's all get in the car and let's go get this thing, all right? And so there's this moment of euphoria. Everybody's just cheering and, and, and laughing and exciting. And so they get in the car and they're just buzzing. It's sort of a scene out of a movie. They're just buzzing down the road, right? I'm sure heads hanging out the window, screaming and hollering. I mean, I'm 38. You tell me after church that we're going to get like a Nintendo Switch, like I'm going to be dancing out of this place. So if this, isn't, this particular purchase isn't resonating with you, fill in the blank, whatever would work. Um, but they get to the store, they buy the Nintendo, the kids are going crazy, they're coming back home. And this is the moment where he says the Lord just sort of dropped this in his lap. <laughs> he says, you know, <clears throat> I, this, is, this is brilliant, a brilliant moment. He said, this is the only brilliant moment I've ever had. But he was driving down the road and he said, you know, he told one of his kids, grab the Bible in the back, open it up to what? Matthew 6. And he said he wanted one of his children to start reading. This is what I just read to you. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, right? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more with your heavenly father? And it's sort of in that moment where there was this taste, right? This real palatable taste of what that text could possibly mean. Not in the, you know, confines of an Nintendo entertainment system, but actually this taste of this moment in this car of the goodness of our Father, remembering these, these promises to us and us receiving this gift. What, what a wonderful glimpse of the goodness of God to his children in that moment. I know how I personally want the best for my children and how I long to give them what they ask if I can and if it's good. Uh, there seems to be no ounce in my being that would want to deny them that. If you're a parent in this room, you maybe experience some of that. But even as I know that about myself, I'm told that's not even close to the goodness of the Father, and that's the point. 
And this is why even those who, uh, who've had good fathers or might even think of themselves as being a good father, right? This is why you need that image deconstructed and reconstructed because it is a mere taste, friends, of the reality of how good your father in heaven is. It's not like we're going to be in heaven one day standing around and God's going to say to us, you know that day that you gave your kids that extra packet of gummy snacks? That was it, man. Like that, you, you couldn't top a picture of the goodness of God any more than that. It's not like anything we're going to do, any trip we're going to give our children or, 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 or anything that we're going to experience with others, the, the goodness of that, the taste of that. It's not like that's going to become all that is the goodness of God. And so we have to allow these images into our minds to deconstruct that and reconstruct it into this, this thing that Scripture only points to. It's such wonderful images. Isaiah 49, 15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? Can she forget her nursing child? And I don't know what that's like. But you do. And, of course, you know what the answer is to that. But even Scripture would go on to say, right after that, even these may forget. But what about your Heavenly Father? He says, I will not forget you. Those are his words to you. It is that parental image you have of the father who goes at length to promise and to show his children of his goodness. Is this the image of the father that you carry with you this morning? Is this the image of the father that we have as we begin this prayer? Our father. A father who longs to give his children good things. A, a father who longs to give him, give us himself. The one who will not forget. And look, it's totally fine if it's not. I'm not here to guilt you. As I said last week, I'm a terrible prayer. I need help with this. The point here is not to guilt you. Oh, you don't have that image? The point is what? We're learning to pray. That's this title. The point is then to allow these images to become a part of who we pray, of, of how we pray and who we pray to, and to be reminded maybe even of what we have forgotten. When we consider just these two images of the Father in Scripture, the one running after his son and the one who loves to give good things to his children, we begin to see why nothing shapes our prayers more than this word, Father. All right, so what does this mean for you as you pray? Just a couple of things. If guilt and shame keep you from prayer, then just let these words, let these images right, not only comfort you, but draw you to and welcome you in before the Father who truly forgives you and is what anticipating your return, anticipating your presence. Who longs to be with you. Remember we said that prayer is relational. It's not about us rehearsing our stories. It's not about us cleaning up our act. Before we can go to him. It's about going to him in our dependence. And in our helplessness. Like children. We don't grow out of this metaphor. This metaphor stays with us. We are always God's children. So in that way act like one. Before your heavenly father. Some of you all have talked about the apathy that you have with prayer. And I get that. Like, why pray? I don't want to pray. Uh, it just feels like I'm not being productive. What's the point? 
For those for you that sit in that camp any given day of the week, take a chance. But not on the father who knows how to give good things to his children, but take a chance on the what? On the narrowness of your own heart. How maybe it is you who have forgotten the goodness of God. How maybe that's, that is the problem and not prayer all along. And they, in that way, may both these images quicken and enrich our prayer life as we perhaps are starting to pray for the very first time or remembering and learning how to pray all over again. Let those images do that. After all, as we look at this text here, who is telling these stories in Luke in the first place? It's almost something that's easy to overlook. But it's Jesus himself. Right? The one who knows the Father better than any of us. The one who knows how and what the Father truly thinks of you. That is who is telling us this. So this is a little of what it means to call God Father. To have Scripture deconstruct and hopefully reconstruct the images that we may carry with us of, of, of our Father. Of Father. Whether that is something that we, you know, we've had, we had bad images of that or even good. The Bible has to take those and reshape those with the picture of who the Father truly is, the goodness of the Father. Lastly, how does this Father then, though, become our Father? And this is where we'll we'll end it this morning. When we get to this part of the prayer, that one little word has so much packed into it. Um, And this is where we have to go to Jesus to understand this word. Calvin, one last time, says, For in calling God Father, we put forward the name of Christ. With what confidence... And this is true, right? I think it's Packard that says what separates the Old and New Testament is the word Father. With what confidence would anyone address God as Father? Who would break forth in such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ? So how does God become our Father? And the answer is the cross, the cross of Jesus where God says no to his son so that he could say yes to you, yes to his children, yes to all of us as sons and daughters of his. Galatians 4, 4, 7 is the text that we go to for this. We read this three weeks ago on the Sermon on Generosity, but here again in this light. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, and that's the key phrase there, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or Daddy. It's familial language. The cross is where then we discover that the father was willing to give up his son so that, we could, so that he could have us, so that we could become his children, so that we could call him Daddy. That's how this prayer not just becomes father, becomes our father. What sin required then, what would keep you from the Father eternally, was made right in the blood of Jesus. So that you could say in one sense that in Christ, the eternal Godhead from all eternity found a way. Found a way for all of us prodigals to what? To return home. And to be in the presence of the Father. And in that presence, there is much anticipation by the Father as he looks for his children, but also anticipation as he longs to hear from you, which is what prayer is. 
May that motivate us and give us new reasons afresh to approach our Father in prayer. I began this week asking the question just in preparation. Look, what in the world does God even get out of prayer in the first place? I mean, we haven't even gotten to petitions yet, which is me asking for a bunch of stuff. All right. What does he get out of this? Why, why do we do this? Why does he want me to do this? But as we see in the end, Jesus knows what God gets out of this. Um, it's interesting that, that he would say and tell his disciples to pray in this way before he had gone to the cross. But it's as if he knows what he's getting out of this. And what he gets out of this is you. What he gets out of this is us. The, the body of Christ. Those believers. <clears throat> and in Jesus, we gain the access and the privilege of being able to call him our father. I'll close with this illustration. I'm sure many of you uh, watched the Super Bowl last week. If not, maybe you heard about it. If you didn't, um, there's six other Super Bowls you could watch that kind of give you the same ending. Um, and some of you caught one of those. But yes, Tom Brady and the New England Patriots win again. Now, Peyton Manning has retired. So I'm all in on Brady at this point. Um, Let's just go for greatness. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I know that it's risky and in a sermon this way. I get it. Uh, there could be bottles coming my way at some point uh, that even mention his name. Some people just can't stand it. But uh, whatever you think of the guy, hear me out. Hear me out here. Um, if you hung around and you watched the, the, the celebration after the game, and, and you could have done this two years ago in Atlanta. There was a, another, another one just like it. And I would even encourage you to go look at this online when, after the service. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. But if you, this, this last Sunday, if you watched the team celebration, the presentation of the, the, the coveted Lombardi trophy, or if you read the headlines the day after, you know what stole the show. The entire time. And, and what stole the show, it wasn't Tom Brady, it wasn't Belichick, it wasn't the players, it wasn't any of uh, one particular player or anything like that. What stole the show was Brady's daughter, if you saw this. Uh, throughout the entire celebration, uh, you know, and, 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 and just sort of this obvious centerpiece, Brady is holding his daughter. She might be five or six, I can't remember. Throughout the whole thing. And she's just eating it all up. And this is what's just really fun and exciting. You've got... Uh, the, the, the Kraft family billionaires up front giving some, you know, rehearsed speech about how wonderful it is to win again. And you've got, you know, the players that are celebrating some of those for the first time who've experienced Super Bowl. And in the back there is just this girl just going nuts, loving the confetti. She's loving being with her dad. Um, I mean, she just, you can imagine what this would be like for her. And this is, you know, kind of how she, she sold the show in one sense because all eyes are just on her. She's eating this up. And what many would think would be the pinnacle of sort of life's achievements in this sort of, you know, area of life. There Brady stands, mesmerized, not by the Lombardi Trophy, not by the players, his, fan, his teammates, you know, not by past one MVPs that have also come his way. What has his attention, what he is mesmerized by, is his daughter. He's just staring at her. And actually, there's this picture that came across uh, that, that sort of went viral where the, where the trophy is given to him. And he's not even looking at it, right? He's looking at his daughter, and his daughter's just playing about it. The only one on that stage who has the right and privilege to be able to call him daddy. This is, this is, same, this is, this is true for you as well as it pertains to your Heavenly Father. To have the privilege and the access to him like she has. 
but also to have the delight that he would have towards his daughter. You have that same delight in the eyes of the Father as he looks at his children because of Jesus. We have access to him. We have the privilege of being able to call him our Father because of Jesus, whose cross does what? It tells us that there was nothing Nothing that he wouldn't do if it meant being able to call all of us prodigals his children. That we in return might be able to call him our father. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is almost impossible to comprehend the words that your scriptures say to us, the words that I'm saying, that somehow um, this, just us, who will go about our mundane lives tomorrow, um, who will buy groceries, who will um, daze at our phone mindlessly, who will drool on our pillows at night, are able to call you Father. I pray that you would break into our lives in ways that we are unprepared for, that we maybe have not considered, to bring us into the reality of that, that we truly would begin to understand what that word means and how it shapes us as we pray, but also as we live. But more importantly, then, even the, the, the more um, unthinkable truth that is our privilege to be able to call you ours. Would you do that for us, for your glory, as your children, we pray. Amen.